0: Welcome to Better Food Stories, a show that celebrates real food and the people and companies who make it. I'm your host, Audrea Greenhoff, and in this podcast, I'm sitting down with the entrepreneurs behind some of today's most innovative food brands to find out what it really takes to make it in this highly competitive space. There are over a thousand types of bananas, more than 4,500 kinds of potatoes, and over 800 breeds of cattle? So, why is it that most of us, yes, even the most adventurous of foodies, have probably never tried even a fraction of these foods? Today's guest, Eric Oberholzer, is here to talk to us all about this food diversity challenge. Eric is a chef and the founder of popular healthy food chain, Tendergreens, and through his latest initiative, Food Forever, he is teaching people about food and agrobiodiversity and the effects it can have on our health and the health of our planet. In my conversation with Eric, we discuss what exactly is food biodiversity and why is it a key factor in improving major problems like climate change? what food entrepreneurs, chefs, and consumers can do to promote food biodiversity, why curiosity plays an important role in creating a more sustainable food system, and we also chat about his favorite lesser known ingredients of the moment and business ideas for aspiring food entrepreneurs based on gaps Eric sees in the market. This is a fantastic conversation packed with information So if you are interested in learning more about sustainability, you definitely want to check out this interview. Without further ado, here is my interview with Eric.
1: You're no stranger to the food industry. You're the founder of Tender Greens, which I'm sure a lot of listeners are familiar with. You're also a champion for food sustainability and involved in a number of projects, one of which we're going to be talking about right now. So why don't we talk about your latest initiative, Food Forever?
2: Yeah, uh, Food Forever is an effort um, to really uh, bring awareness to the importance of agrobiodiversity in the in the food system, uh, and it was really uh, driven by the Crop Trust, which manages the global seed vault that some people might have heard of, and the 11 international vaults around the, the world, and and, and then this network of uh, seed exchanges and 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 seed banks around the world, and and they're really missioned with preserving the world's crop diversity, which gets really dense and heavy. But you know, food forever is this larger tent that invites various stakeholders from around the world, uh, including the United Nations, um, to. To work together towards um, both uh, educating people, uh, bringing awareness to to consumers and others about the importance of biodiversity in the food system. And then wherever possible, um, inspire action and participation, uh, particularly with uh, chefs and food brands, because uh, chefs often are the curators of culinary culture. And can influence consumer behavior while sponsoring better food systems uh, in the farming community. That's sort of how I came upon this um, as a chef, and as a you know the founder of Tender Greens, um, I was able to influence um, you know our our consumers and and our our audience uh, as well as uh, tap into our supply chain to to deepen the roots of diversity um, in the ingredients that we use.
1: What are some of the things you're working on as part of this initiative? So, you know, I, uh, I am now with uh,
2: Cohere, which is uh, both a branding and marketing uh, firm based here in Philadelphia, um, but also we have an advisory uh, function where I work with uh, founders, um, primarily in the, in the plant-centered space uh, who are looking to refine their supply chain and uh, scale their businesses, and and through those groups, I'm able to um, pr- provide a little bit of visibility into the to the future of food and nudge them where appropriate towards um, incorporating some of these uh, more diverse ingredients. And diversity comes in two forms. Uh, there's what I called the heirloom tomato version. So for mm-hmm. every common ingredient, there are hundreds, if not thousands of varietals. Um, so that might be, you know, we think of rice as a commodity or corn as a commodity. Um, but there are there are thousands of varieties of rice, and that's the diversity within a single ingredient. Um, and then there's the, the broad range of diversity. So Um, ingredients on the edge of the food system. Uh, So think about phonio and amaranth and um, and finger millet, um, all um, ingredients that many people have never heard of or worked uh, with commonly, Um, but they, they could be the next quinoa or asahi.
1: Why do you think it's so important for, especially for these ingredients that you mentioned are on the edge, what, what do you think is so beneficial for uh, both chefs and consumers to know about and utilize these lesser known ingredients?
2: Yeah, so, so it's important to chefs because um, what is packaged in, in this diversity is um, diversity in flavor, in texture, um, which provides just broader culinary range. Um, And as chefs, we're always looking for for new ingredients and, uh, you know, ingredients that might inspire us. Um, I think uh, from a consumer perspective, uh, many of these ingredients uh, carry intense nutritional density. Many of them are really multivitamins uh, or a form of, you know, natural medicine. Um, while being delicious so chefs can turn uh, food um, into to something that's intensely craveable um, but also intensely healthy um, and that is important to the wellness of, of, of diners and consumers um, but it goes much deeper than that um, if we rely on on just a few crops or ingredients then we're at risk of uh, complete system failure, crop failure, and you know we're sitting here in this in the middle of the COVID pandemic, which has essentially shut down the entire world economy. Mm-hmm. Well, imagine if uh, there were a um, a disease that that impacted corn, uh, and suddenly the w- world corn supply collapsed. Um, or, or rice or wheat, um, if you don't have a diverse, resilient um, uh, you know, seed system, then there is not much to combat um, crop failure. And massive crop failure can cause um, massive hunger, massive disruption in the food system. Um, so the more diversity we have, the more leverage we have to or tools to, to navigate an ever-changing climate um, and, and also um, an ever-changing uh, economic system uh, that, um, that we need to have uh, some level of uh, resilience to, to survive to feed the next 9 billion people.
1: Absolutely. And I think as food consumers, more people are starting to become aware of our own responsibility effect that we have on the whole system, there is so much information out there available to food consumers, and a website like Food Forever is a good place to start. What are some of the ways consumers can educate themselves, and what are some of the first steps you think are most impactful in taking meaningful action?
2: Yeah, I I think it comes in the form of micro-curiosity. So... You know, when I was growing up, there were just a few types of tomatoes that I knew about. There was the cherry tomato, the Jersey beefsteak tomato, and the five by six crappy tomato that you saw in winter. Um, There wasn't much more. Uh, By the time I had started out as a chef and moved to Berkeley, California, there was this amazing abundance of heirloom tomatoes that I was exposed to. Um, and it was really beginning to to take hold in the in the early '90s uh, in California. And what was happening there was um, uh, chefs like Alice Waters were connecting with farmers uh, to bring old heirloom varietals back, um, both you know first in the field and then on on the plates. And as as people tasted these and saw these in the peak of their season, they fell in love with them. Today, it, we can't imagine a, a, a world without heirloom tomatoes. So I think for consumers to, to stay curious and to look for those uh, unusual uh, ingredients, even if it's, a, if, if it's a, a common ingredient, a cucumber that looks like a lemon, for example, in the peak of season is going to be much different than your, your standard cucumber. And then in the same way, you know, 10, 15 years ago, nobody knew how to pronounce quinoa. They didn't know what to do with it. It showed up on, you know, occasional hippie menus or whatever. And now we can't go anywhere without seeing quinoa in, in many forms. Um, so the curiosity um, for ingredients that we've never heard of that might end up being part of our, our daily diet at some point um, and offer uh, textures, flavors, and nutritional uh, density that's going to make our lives more interesting, more vibrant, um, is a way to continue this um, ever uh, amazing journey of food curiosity and develop a positive relationship with food.
1: Where do you recommend people go to um, purchase these different types of ingredients? Yeah, I, I think um,
2: the the farmers' markets are always great because the the farmers that are oftentimes at the markets are are the ones who are on the progressive edge of of the food system. So oftentimes they're introducing new varietals um, or or new ingredients um, to differentiate themselves. Um, so that's a, a as a chef, that's often where I go to see what farmers are, are growing, uh, successfully and, and then play with them. Uh, alternatively, you can go to, you know, markets like whole food or mom's market or air you know, are dedicated to, um, you know, food that is diverse, interesting, and oftentimes, um, a little bit esoteric uh, in the moment, but they they believe that there's there's uh, there's this opportunity for, for an ingredient to um, to be you know broadly um, accepted by, by consumers, and they start um, with with those who are, who are most curious. And right now, you know, the two that I'm most interested in. Uh, would be fonio, which is out of West Africa. It's a super grain. It's uh, g- inherently gluten-free and really easy to use. It, it cooks up exactly like couscous, so it's uh, it's very easy to to work with. Um, and then amaranth, which um, you know, in this period of COVID, uh, I've been using amaranth flour, uh, which is originally out of Mexico, for for pancakes and breads and other things. Again. Also gluten-free for those people who, you know, who care about that, uh, but really, really interesting in flavor um, and easy to swap out with,
1: uh, with common wheat flour. You mentioned, obviously, COVID and, and the situation that we're in right now. It's no secret that it's a stressful time for everybody. It's a stressful time for the restaurant and food industry. But on the positive side, you know, we're also hearing a lot of stories of people consuming less, whether or not that's by choice, Uh, you know, experimenting with different ingredients and even areas where pollution has decreased. Do you think some of these new things that we've been adopting are here to stay?
2: Yeah, I I believe so. I, you know, I, I think if this had been a two or three week pause, then everybody would have rushed back to where, you know, wherever they left off. Uh, but we've been given, you know, I think we're in week eight or nine now. Um, we've developed uh, new rituals, new behaviors. Um, and, and everybody I talk to, and, and myself included, uh, finds far more good in all this than bad. And mm-hmm. and that's not to d- dismiss those who are, are suffering or have been sick or are, are challenged by, by isolation, or their businesses or their jobs have evaporated. Uh, I think there's a lot of pain and suffering in this, this whole thing. But um, it has given some relief to the planet. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And it has given us all a moment to to reprioritize and really think about what, what matters. And, um, you know, growing up, for me was, um, was simpler and we didn't go out to eat all the time. We cooked at home. My mom did. Um, and, and I think a lot of people are, are finding joy in, in, in cooking and eating, uh, at home. And, and I think there might be a, a balanced return to, um, eating out, but, uh, a lot, a lot of us, and again, I'm a chef, so i like to cook at home anyway, but, um, know there's this whole fascination with uh, sourdough Um, and people are experimenting with that others are are fermenting and uh, others are you know making their own pasta Uh, lots of people are gardening or raising chickens and the more connected we come with our food the deeper the relationship we have with our food that's positive the more likely that's going to be sustained because it's so important and so magical. So I think there's a lot of good in this. I, I think um, there's, a, there's a real chance that um, many of us will, will be changed for, forever um, and for, in many ways the better. And there's risk that you know, those have become uh, addicted to Amazon or, or takeout or on-demand, whatever, um, are going to continue that. Um, behavior, uh, which, in my view, disconnects people with food and disconnects uh, folks with, um, you know, sort of the some of the, the special rituals or the people behind our food. Um, so we'll we'll see. I I, I I think there will be two two groups in that, but um, I'm I'm hoping for more uh, more analog experiences with food.
1: Absolutely. I agree with you. And I've even noticed in the local markets in my area, I live in South Florida, there is no all-purpose flour anywhere. There is no yeast anywhere. So I really believe people are are curious and are experimenting and trying out different things while they're at home.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So I'd love to talk a little bit more about your journey. How did you end up working as a chef and in the restaurant industry?
2: Um, after college, I, I went off to culinary school and uh, up in Providence, Rhode Island at Johnson Wales, spent a little time over in Paris uh, finishing uh, school and then quickly moved to California, first to Northern California, where I spent about a decade cooking in some of the best restaurants in the, in the world. And um, this was through the, the 90s when the slow food movement was really taking hold and the relationship between chefs and local farmers and artisans was, was evolving. Um, and, and I just fell in love with the, um, the, the importance of ver- the very best ingredients um, from the people who we had intimate relationships with whose fields or pastures we could walk and the collaborative energy between the farmer and the, and the chef and, and the magic that that made. And then obviously the language of menu writing and, and, and cooking um, in, in a means to touch the, the, the guests in our restaurant. And, um, and then later moved to Los Angeles uh, to run shutters on the beach. And it was, There that I started to imagine um, uh, what later became Tender Greens.
1: When did you become passionate about biodiversity education and sustainability? It evolved over time and took on different names. I I think early on in
2: in my California experience, I I I was exposed to um, the difference between these ingredients that were grown. In Marin County or up in Napa or Sonoma, um, harvested that that morning and and, um, and 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 sort of served that evening at the restaurant and and how important that was, um, and then the ongoing discovery of new varietals, um, you know, heirloom varietals, um, and and their 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 flavor nuance and 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 their their various characteristics which ones i liked which ones i didn't um but it wasn't until i met marie haga about 4 years ago in los angeles uh, she was the executive was the executive director of the crop trust um that i really um got into agrobiodiversity uh by name uh um and, and it was basically a continuation of the slow food, farm to fork movement, um, but it, uh, it it took me a little bit out outside of my box, particularly on um, global product diversity and and looking for and celebrating ingredients that were um, uh, were were very special to to different parts of the world and relevant. Uh, to, you know, to some of the cooking that I, I, you know, I do today.
1: Absolutely. A lot of people who listen to this podcast are interested in building their own food brands, whether, you know, they're a chef or an entrepreneur. What advice do you have to somebody starting off right now? Well, I think
2: the, the key for any entrepreneur is... Either to look at, uh, for a gap in the market and and try and fill it um, with something that uh, you know people you believe need that that is an actual gap and an actual need and you never know until till you till you try and that's what we did with tender greens we saw a gap between high end and low end and and and, and filled it and and you know fortunately we were right and uh, there was a there was a big demand there. Uh, the other one is to, to look at problems. You know, what are the problems that nobody seems to be solving for and find a solution um, and monetize it. So uh, that could be, um, you know, it could be a number of things. You know, we, have, uh, we, we do have a problem with uh, uh, food access. Uh, so, you know, some of these things that we're talking about are still somewhat of a privileged experience. Um, So, you know, how do we solve for, um, for, for access and hunger? Um, How do we solve for uh, food related illness? So type two diabetes, obesity, et cetera. Um, And, and some of that might be in the, in the form of, uh, you know, making, coming up with a product that, uh, is similar to what's making people sick, but actually is is healthy, healthy for them. So it has to be delicious. Uh, it has to be craveable. It has to be affordable. It has to be accessible. And by the way, it's just exponentially healthier than, than you know, the common version. Um, and then there, you know, there are environmental uh, um, problems that we have to solve. And, and I think that's where a lot of these meat analog um, companies, so Beyond Meat and uh, Impossible Foods, are are trying to solve for, um, you know, the, the meat industry's impact on, on climate change. They're very successful. You know, they, they've been able to raise a lot of money, uh, Beyond Meat um, IPO'd, and they're introducing uh, people to plant-based eating who otherwise probably wouldn't you know, would turn their nose up to it. Uh, so they become, you know, sort of this bridge uh, product into something that might be both healthy for the planet and ultimately, uh, if if they continue down the journey of of a, of a whole whole food plant-based diet, uh, might be healthier for them.
1: As far as educating consumers, you know, if you're an entrepreneur or, or a chef behind, say, one of these companies like Go Beyond Meat, do you think that the product itself and, and just by you talking about its benefits is educating the consumer? What kind of strategies do you have um, if you are introducing kind of a new ingredient to the market? What are some good ways to get people to turn their ear up and listen?
2: Yeah, I, I, th- I think that for the most part, um, tactics not unlike a political campaign, work. That is to say, if if you're um, if if you're beyond meter impossible, then uh, you know your your talking point is this is better for the environment because uh, you know uh, industrialized animal production uh, accounts for X percentage of greenhouse gases, which uh, contributes to climate change, and nobody wants that. Da, 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 da. Um, so what it what it does is it evangelizes people around plant based food because they want they feel like they're um, they're 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 doing something good for the environment. Now that may or may not be true, um, and that can be debated. Uh, but uh, you know they they keep hammering that message. And, and hopefully there's some truth to it so that, um, you know, they're doing good. Uh, and, and what it does is it starts a conversation. Uh, you know, the same thing is true uh, with, for example, um, the, the food transparency movement and GM, the use of GMOs. Uh, it became a, a thing where... People did not want genetically modified organisms in their food products. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they were willing to pay a premium for that. Uh, So there was a a very aggressive campaign to to say GMOs are bad, period. Um, And we're going to uh, label it um, if it's non-GMO and then see if people will pay a premium for it. Uh, What we found was they do it's important. Uh, and, and again, you can debate some of the science. You can debate um, you know, the use of GMOs, and, and there are good arguments on, on both sides. But I think uh, it's been a very successful uh, campaign against GMOs, and it was mostly related to food transparency, the fact that big food did not want to list that something was genetically modified. Therefore, the public, uh, consumers, chefs, food brands, said, well, then we're going to label label it ourselves if we believe that GMOs are an issue and we'll let the consumer decide. And the the consumer decided and said, we will pay a premium for non-GMO. I think the gluten-free movement uh, is another example um, can be debated on both sides, but it has become very clear that people um, have some anxiety around gluten. So, I, I guess what I'm saying is a a, a very clear, repeatable message um, that that pushes the agenda in a certain direction. Um, and then supported hopefully by science and truth and good behavior and 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 great intentions and everything else um nothing is pure but uh uh, i you know i i I think a, a a good campaign is crystal clear if you get into the the details of things you lose the audience
1: yeah and i also agree with you in the sense of, you know, just starting a conversation. I think starting conversations is so important. Um, It goes back to what you were saying about being curious, right? And just um, wanting to learn more about different things and and figuring out what you like and what works for you. That's right. Before I let you go, I always do um, some kind of fun off-topic closing questions with my guests. Is that something that you're up for? Fire away. All right. Number one. What is the last movie or TV show that you watched?
2: Uh, Last TV show was uh, Bill Maher last Friday. Real time with Bill Maher.
1: (laughs) Awesome. Number two, if you could only eat three foods for the rest of your life, what would they be? Uh, A beautiful green salad.
2: Pasta with uh, rigatoni with uh, mushroom bolognese. And... I want to say I'm going to say a perfectly grilled uh, fish with lemon, olive oil and a little bit of uh, fresh parsley.
1: Oh, that sounds good. Hitting all the food groups there. I love that. Number three, where is your favorite place that you've ever traveled?
2: That's a good question. Uh, Traveled some nice places. I'm going to say Belize.
1: Oh, okay, That's a good one. Did you do any snorkeling while you were there?
2: Yeah, it's a perfect place Uh uh, for snorkeling.
1: Okay, number four, what's one thing most people wouldn't guess about you?
2: Uh, I have been meditating twice a day for the last 30 years. Never missed a day.
1: That's incredible. How long do you meditate for? Uh,
2: 20 minutes in the morning and then 20 minutes uh, in the afternoon.
1: Wow, that's incredible. I love that.
0: If you want to learn more about Food Forever and the work that Eric is doing through this wonderful initiative, you could visit foodforever.org. That's food, the number four, ever.org.